0: Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today we're welcoming the host of another podcast, Mr. Nick Bailey, who has a lot of great insights on independent film as well as podcasting itself. Let's get started. On mic today, we have Nick Bailey from the Fan Counter Celebrity Podcast. How are you doing, Nick? I'm great, Aaron. How are you? I am doing great, and I feel I should give the audience a little bit of a backstory here. This is actually part two of a conversation we've had, and they're not going to hear part one because it went off to the four winds of the internet, but I do want to let them know that we have had a little bit of history, and I really think that you've got a lot going on that I want to talk about.
1: No problem. And we can cover those things again. Uh, I don't have a, you know, you mentioned creating lightning twice. I think we can make that happen.
0: Okay. Well, you are a podcaster by trade as well. Yeah. Uh, You have what. A the Fan Counter Celebrity Podcast, and we cover a lot of the same material, but often from very different angles, and I do like that.
1: Yeah, you know, I always, every time I have a guest on, no matter if they're really, really famous or not so much, I always check out their interviews that they did on other shows. I always feel like there's, sometimes uh, we get so wrapped up in what we know we're already going to ask the celebrity, we forget mm-hmm. to listen and ask those follow-up questions. So a lot of times my interviews are just based off of, Wow, they missed a fo- great follow-up for that, mm-hmm. and then all—it's all follow-up questions. So, you know, yeah, we do a lot of the same thing. Your interviews are excellent. I listened to some of the same guests that we had interviewed um, previously, in, in preparation for the interview, and you're very thorough, just like I am, and that's what I really love—the the connection
0: between our two shows. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for—connection—because we tend to have the same approach in that. We want to take a step back from, like you said, what's already known about the person. I like to call it the Q&A format, the the conventions, the questions you'd ask at a convention. I like to get away from that and say, hey, what motivated you to get up in the morning? What what makes you want to do this? What do you get out of it?
1: Yeah, definitely. We go for Like, I really want to know about what it's like to be a celebrity. I'll never be a celebrity. So I always am intrigued by what it's like for like a megastar to walk into a grocery store. Uh, we had Bruce Valanche on the program and, and he'll be airing soon. And it's like, he's a very recognizable face. You mm-hmm. can't go to, you know, Hollywood and pa- bypass him and not notice that that's him. Mm-hmm. And so what's it like for him to go grocery shopping? And, you know, so we asked him that exact same question. And that's, those are the, the, the things that interest me is what's it like to be in the spotlight and why do you choose this? And, you know, at what point was it, you, you know, could you not go back and, you know, it's point of no return as far as I'm a recognizable person now.
0: And I get to the point where I, 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 I'm in the same spot. I see where that person is. They're Bruce Valanche day in and day out, and they have that experience. And how many people are going up and saying, hey, the Star Wars holiday special, what was that all about? <laughs> and I asked him that, too. But I want at to get at it from the angle of where did this take you? What where did you co- how did you arrive at this point in your life? Asking about an animated Boba Fett, to me, knowing he's answered that question so many times,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's not where I want to go.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's stuff you want to know, but you can go somewhere else for that.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'm sure if I look on YouTube and I type in Bruce Valanche or Boba Fett, I'm going to get my answer. I want to go step past that. Yeah.
1: No, that's what's really cool about it.
0: But you're not just into podcasting. You've also got into the filmmaking game as well. Yeah, so um, that started all about the time I was doing a lot of theater,
1: and I just decided that we could take some of these scripts that we had written for theater that were original products, and I'm like, these would make great movies, and so that's kind of how it started back in 2008. I released a film called Tomorrow for a Dollar, which was basically a stage play that we had done that we rewrote for the screen. And it was the first film that I had ever done. And in fact, it was the first film most of the people working on that movie had ever done. And it was about four friends who were graduating high school. And what what was it like that last night uh, before they all go off to college? So er, the night was culminating at a party. But there were lots of different situations that happened to each character on their way to that party that made it interesting. Kind of like a super bad kind of movie. Just not as like raunchy or anything, but... um, it just had some magic for everybody's excitement. And I think that that's the biggest thing is if you're really excited to make a project, it really shines through in the creators and the actors. And I think that that's the magic that this film had. Uh, It actually premiered at the Tribeca Film, uh, Tribeca Theaters for the International Film Festival uh, that they have there. And that's where we premiered. And it was uh, was a pretty good success. And it made me want to make more.
0: That, the word magic, I like that. And the reason I I like it is because I really dig independent film. Uh, I remember doing some student films back in college and and things like that. And I just I couldn't put my finger on why it has that magic to it. And I realized that, you know, if you go to a studio production, everybody is there in some capacity is there to make money. Yep. on an independent film, people are expecting to lose money or best case break even. So you have to love the project.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. We didn't expect to make any money. We did this on really a shoestring budget. Uh, and you can probably tell the in fact being made in that two thousand seven time period where things weren't HD digital yet, you know, we're recording onto tapes. And so the quality when it converts is not as great as it would be if you made that movie now. And but what what made it happen is Everybody pitched in to find great locations. I mean, we had very hard to get locations, like restaurants and gas stations. Um, I forget what some of the other ones were, but but to just be able to operate with them while they're doing normal business was somewhat of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you make things work when you're doing an end of indie film, and you're you know you're getting these locations for free, so
0: you take what you can get. And the time you're talking about, the 2007. 2007- I put anything between, like, 1999 and 2012 as, like, the golden age of indie cinema, because that was the point at which the price of the equipment dropped to the point where anybody could get it. Absolutely. But Netflix hadn't become the indie-sucking monster it is now. <laughs> and I say that because I know Netflix gives a lot of blood to the indie industry, but I think they also have a homogenizing effect to it, which kills my chance of being sponsored by them right now. So, sorry, Netflix. but.
1: Well it probably, your chances were probably killed before that. Yeah. Uh, no, I know what you're saying about that because they're putting so much money into Like the indie films aren't really what they were before. I mean, if Tomorrow for a Dollar and some of these other films were done for $10,000 or so, that's not the kind of indie films you're seeing on Netflix. But it is kind of what was made in that pre-2012 era. And I think that those films had something that these don't as far as, I think the films now are are made especially for getting on streaming services, where we didn't have that option back then. We were strictly a DVD, we put it on Amazon. We advertised the crap out of it, you know, word of mouth and that kind of thing just to get that money back. Uh, and here they have guaranteed deals going into it, and they call it an indie film, but is That's, it silly? Really? It's kind wow. of a studio project. Netflix is kind of a studio.
0: they they are a studio. They're and just a they're not-
1: financing it they're they're just bringing it but if you have that distribution deal in place ahead of time you're going to spend a little bit more you're going to find that money it's just going to kind of magically appear if you know that you have a platform that's going to pay for it
0: yeah distribution is always that last bit that actually makes the project pay off if you don't have to risk that if that's known going in nothing else is i'm not gonna say nothing's a risk but the whole game has changed absolutely
1: Yep. yeah uh, you know, so the second film I did was 2010. So, two years after, we had released a film called Diary of an Ex Child Star. And that film is about, it was kind of like that Hannah Montana era where she had was, that was a TV show on Disney. And this was a girl who was trying to hide who she was because she was this mega star, right? So, we kind of unraveled that a little bit, switched it around where this child star is at the height of her fame when her show gets canceled. And instead of continuing on to another project, her parents move her back to her small hometown. So this is a girl that couldn't hide who she was because she was that megastar. Now she's got to settle down into normal, real life, go to school, deal with real kids. And that's what the the, the, the movie was about, is the adjustment of a, a mega child star. That movie turned into a TV pilot that I ended up writing with Beverly Mitchell from 7th Heaven. And we created kind of a new story we called it growing up hollywood and she wanted to incorporate some of her real life experiences growing up on the set of seventh heaven into like the behind the scenes portion of being a child star and we were able to pitch it to companies like disney and abc family and nickelodeon um and unfortunately they all passed Mm -hmm. um every now and then it's like i'll get a little like email from the agent and say you know oh this project's on the table again and i'm like oh it's that's happened so many times Where now after eight years, I'm like, it's not going to you're,
0: n- you're numb to it.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, OK, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but the last one came like a couple of years ago. So sure. Uh, I'm expecting one any day now.
0: I find it interesting that Net, uh, Nickelodeon and Disney looked at it because it it just seems like it's the kind of thing that seems like it would fit their brand but then really doesn't because if you're looking at the downside of child stardom they always made it look so glamorous and and i i i struggle to think of them putting it in the other direction
1: well disney was going for it uh as a movie that we were going to redo the movie that we made Mm -hmm. uh the other ones were going more for the series aspect of it
0: makes sense makes sense
1: so what came after that Uh, After that, I kind of well, that was that was the height. I mean, that project took me an extra three years. And during that time, I met up with some other people that were doing films and stuff. So then I kind of started that scary horror genre uh, where we did a film called Another Zombie Flick because there were so many zombie movies coming out at that time. So we did a live action uh, zombie movie where we didn't tell the cast like there was no script. We didn't have a script for the the movie. It was all improv actors. We, we found some of the best improv actors we could. And we said, uh, we're going to convene at this diner at 10 p.m. And we are going to film a movie. And they're like, well, wh- where's my lines? I'm like, and you will make those up. So we gave everybody a very detailed character description of who they were. Nobody else knew who they were because everybody's going to meet at this restaurant. And we set up situations that evening. And we knew we had a game plan of exactly what the movie was about what characters were going to interact with who we just didn't know exactly what they'd be saying. And we knew we had zombies made up to invade this diner and and different things that happened. Um, And we filmed this movie in two nights, uh, two overnights. And what was the best scene in the movie, I think is uh, we actually had two guys come in with guns at one point and hold the place up. And it was on the first night. One of the first things we shot because the amount of surprise in the actors faces of, is this real? Is this not? Cause we really haven't filmed much yet. Is this part of it? You know? And cause we were all reacting to it as well as like, Oh my God, this is, you know, get down under the tables. And uh, it, it was, a, that was, a, that was the best moment in the film, fortunately. Uh, well, maybe unfortunately because the rest of it was kind of a lot of lead up for not much uh, happening at the end. I'll, I'll tell you that, but it was a really fun film to make and a uh, very unique experience.
0: I could see that, and, and I imagine you're, you're making a movie in two days, you're making it without any script prepared with people who are trained at improvisation. Is there a moment, like on the second or third take of that first evening, where you're saying, did I just make a gigantic mistake?
1: Um, I thought that a lot during the process, because at times we were getting close to what we thought we would get, but we weren't quite there. We weren't like... There was a lot of, ums uh, you know, people weren't sure what to say. And it took a while to get going. But, you know, once they got into the rhythm and and even I think what really propelled them there was that hold up shot that we did, because after that, they're like, oh, okay you know, I think they felt more comfortable. And the the whole premise of the movie was that this uh, TV reality star was doing a hometown visit to this restaurant where he was meeting up like his ex-girlfriend was there and uh, the sheriff that he used to get in trouble with. I mean, you know, we had it set up where everybody knew the history of each other's character if they were supposed to have known this person. Uh, they did a really good job. They, I think it we pulled it off. It's still available if people want to check it out.
0: I'm going to make sure the show notes list that there because it's, it's a fascinating <laughs> project for sure.
1: It's an interesting premise just that it was filmed in such a short period of time without a script.
0: And you did a web series as well.
1: Yeah, the web series was something where after we pitched that TV pilot and it was unsuccessful, I thought I really missed my opportunity, I felt, to be in the writer's room and create a series that has an arc and um, one episode impacts another. So I thought I really want to challenge myself to write something like that. And so I came up with a web series called uh, Life on Their Own, or Life on Our Own. This was a few years ago, sorry. And uh, it was about two sisters who... Their mother died. The father is um, working overseas for a short period of time, and he goes missing. So the older sister has to take care of the younger sister, and um, the, the dad is feared dead. And we find out towards the end that may or may not be the case. But it was a 10-episode web series. Uh, each episode had arcs that followed through the whole entire series. Uh, and it was really just kind of a passion project to make sure that I felt like I could write something. It was, it was to prove myself as a writer. You know,
0: in this day and age when you can whip something up, either in 10 minutes or 10 years and put it on YouTube, there's no reason not to do those passion projects.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, there's it's low failure rate. And, you know, I own a video production company, so it's not like I was out a lot of money to do any of these filmings because I own all the camera equipment and the mics and the the editing software and um, pretty much was a one man show in in regards to the post production. Uh, but even having the stuff on hand that normal people might just be shooting with this little mini camera. I mean, we shoot live events like concerts and uh, things for bands. And so just having all that high end equipment does help in making a film, you know, a film or a web series for, for low budgets. But, you know, I've heard so many times uh, even Hollywood actors say, you know, the, they'll make projects themselves just so they have something to star in. And I think there's a lot of legitimacy to that because you can do it on an iPhone. And if you didn't tell anybody and it's shot right,
0: nobody would know. Nobody would know. And I I used to laugh at the cell phone cameras because, let's be honest, it took a while for them to get good. Mm -hmm. Cell phone cameras kind of hit around 2005, 2006. They weren't really, in my mind, usable until about 2010, 2011. But, yeah, now... Let's not discount the fact that a lot of engineering has gone into them and in the right hands, always got to preface that, it can turn out some wonders.
1: Absolutely. There's a lot of handheld devices where it removes all the shake. Uh, and if you have the mount where you can put it on a tripod for those steady shots, you know, but you got to have a good sound equipment because mm-hmm. you can have crappy video and if the sound is good, people are going to watch. But if you have, you know, crappy sound, it's, it takes up somebody out of the project. Mm-hmm. immediately
0: and, and the reason is that people don't really want to notice the sound so if they notice it it's usually for a bad reason yeah, absolutely yep. yep it should it should be an invisible part of the process and that, that's one thing that i i struggle with because I, I actually have a little trouble hearing at times so uh you know in my own projects i like to have somebody else give an ear to it and just tell me if, if it's terrible or not
1: <laughs> well in diary of an ex-child star we did a lot of adr and I don't like watching that film because I can tell when we used it. And I'm just like, ooh, did somebody else hear that? You know, and I look look around. I'm like, all right, nobody's really reacting. But I know it's there.
0: I, for whatever it's worth, um, I, of the people that have listened to this show and given me feedback, and I've tried to make that number pretty big, um, the people who have come back and commented on sound are always the people who have worked professionally with it. Okay. So... I, I think I, you've done a decent job if the only people who can give you that people are the people who are paid to do it.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Especially if they don't notice, if they don't say anything, for sure. Right. Yep. Yeah. So uh, Life on Our Own is on YouTube. If you want to still check it out, uh, 10 episodes, they're about five, well, seven to 10 minutes each. And um, unfortunately, you're not going to find out what happens to the sisters, because since this was a few years ago, these kids have grown up. Mm hmm would be very hard to recreate the series.
0: I, yeah, that is a shame. You're, you're, when you work with child actors, you're always dealing with time as an enemy there. Right. Would be interesting if there was a way to continue it on another format. It's possible. Or, or I, you know, I've got
1: so many other ideas, and, and I'm a screenwriter now, you know, as far as I feel like my writing is, is solid. I've got like three or four feature films that I've written that in the back of my head, I'm like, I really want to produce these someday. Uh, and, and now COVID has really put us behind the eight ball because even if I wanted to try and get a project together for later in the year, who knows when that might even be
0: possible. It, it seems like COVID has become both the the genesis of a lot of projects and the doom of a lot of projects all at the same time because it's like people who can figure out how to do it under COVID have all the time they need and yet yeah. so many projects are shut down because they don't have those resources.
1: Here's what's going to happen, though. When when everything returns, there's going to be so much awesome, amazing content because all these writers have had nothing but time to put their heart and soul into whatever creation has been in the back of their mind for so long. All the writers except me, because I have one, one more idea I want to put on paper uh, yet. But think of all the amazing content that probably will come from being shut down for so long.
0: Yeah, uh, and the fact that people ha- are... Experimenting more than they used to because they have to use different formats or you work with different people than they're used to, or sometimes, you know, in some cases, doing all the work on their own. How many writers are going to try to direct? How many directors are going to try to produce? How many producers are just going to become extras? I mean, who knows?
1: Right. Anything is possible at this point.
0: It really is. And, and I, much as I don't take any pleasure in the situation that's happened in the world throughout the past year. I really think it's going to have the effect of showing us new possibilities Mm -hmm. and and new ways of doing things that we were just too complacent to try before.
1: Yeah, you know, in the back of my head, I know that there are a lot of new apps all the time on my Roku that have original material on them. Um, So I think, you know, five or six years ago, you might think, well, Netflix is the only place I have. And oh, wait, now Amazon Prime is starting to throw Mm -hmm. out some money for films. But now when you think of like Pluto TV and uh, all these other places that are now allowing independent creators to put their stuff on there, the avenues for independent projects now is becoming infinite. Where five years ago, that was not even something we thought would happen.
0: No. I said, when I go back to the glory days of, of independent film, I had a gig where I actually did a lot of reviews for independent films. Mm-hmm. So I would just have, on a monthly basis, this giant box full of DVDs show up on my desk full of stuff I had never heard of
1: mm-hmm.
0: and probably couldn't track down if you held a gun to my head. <laughs> if it wasn't hand-delivered to me, I would have never known it existed. Right, right. And and I want those people who are doing stuff, that, or today's equivalent, to have those opportunities. Were those gems? Did you find some good ones in that? I, I did. Cool. I, I found a lot of good gems. Nice. Uh, have you ever heard of a movie called moving
1: um was there anybody of note in it
0: not to the best of my knowledge now probably not no okay um it was a uh, they only did a vhs release until very recently i think they finally made a dvd in the mid 2010s but um it was about two guys uh, a guy who literally loses his house he he goes home one day and there's a slab where his house used to be wow so that's, he has that's he losing has, it yeah he has to find, solve the mystery of what happened to my house. Wow, that sounds good. It, it really was. And I should probably reach out to those guys and try to get them on the show because it was one of the best movies out of that very good batch of movies I found that time in my life.
1: It's called Moving. Moving. I will definitely have to look for that.
0: I'll see if I can put that in the show notes if I can track these dudes down. Great. But in the meantime, Nick, um, I'm going to have to let you go. But where can people locate you and check out your stuff?
1: Thanks. Yeah. We've got um, celebrities
0: every single week
1: talking about their encounters with their fans. That's kind of the hook of Fan Counters. So go to fancounters.com. We're also available if you search Fan Counters on all the podcasting apps and platforms. And we're on Facebook. Just search Fan Counters.
0: Yep. If you like Hungry Charlie Bite, you're going to like Fan Counters. We are cut out of the same cloth. So, Nick, thanks so much. And let's have you back on soon.
1: Thank you so much. Have a great day.
0: You too. I would like to thank Nick for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. Let's get to the community building part of the show, and I remind you, a community building tip is something we use to grow the show, but my pledge is that it costs you nothing and it takes less than five minutes of your time. Now, I admit this suggestion might just push the edge of that five minutes. It might be like four and a half, but I think it's worth it. I'd like to talk to anybody out there who happens to have an editing position at a wiki, whether that be Wikipedia or a fan wiki, pretty much any type of wiki would do as long as it's somewhat relevant to the show. We have a lot of people on who are known on wikis, they are actors, they are famous people, or we talk about topics that are covered in wikis, things like independent films, things like science, If somebody on this show has said something relevant to your wiki, go ahead and add that if it's relevant, if it's appropriate, and add the show as a source. We have experts on a lot of topics on this show, so if their words are relevant to the article, go ahead and add it. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.